You're listening to audio from Liberty Church in the Harrisburg-Camp Hill area of Pennsylvania. For more information, please visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org. That's Liberty with an I, Harrisburg.org. Hey, good morning, everyone. Uh, my name is Steve King. I'm an elder here at uh, Liberty. It's my joy to, to spend some time up front uh, preaching uh, in God's Word today. Uh, and I'm excited to, to have us continue our summer in the Psalms. So if you've been with us, you know that we're studying through Psalms. If this is your first time with us today, we're in Psalms for the summer. Took a break from Acts, which we were in in the spring. We're going to pick back up in Acts in the fall. But for the summer, we're in the Psalms. And I really appreciated uh, Pastor Matt's introduction to our summer in the Psalms a few weeks ago when he highlighted how we'll be jumping around the book of Psalms and not necessarily going in numerical order, even with the Psalms that we're preaching through. We didn't start at Psalm 1. We're jumping all over the place. Um, But to set us up for success in our study of each Psalm, uh, I thought Matt did a good job of introducing us to two guardrails, Um, one each from Psalm 1 and one from Psalm 2. Essentially, uh, here is what is helpful to know from Psalms 1 and 2 that helps with the reading of every other psalm. And so in Psalm 1, it's that we need God's Word. The study of, meditation on, and trust in God's Word is completely right and good and needed for every person. That's the the lesson from Psalm 1. And in Psalm 2, it's this. We see that the king is on his throne, and that's God. There is authority that God has as creator that he installs and validates in an earthly king like King David, who wrote so many of the Psalms that we read, including the one we're we're, we're going through today, Psalm 95. Um, And there's also authority that is guaranteed and held forever by Jesus, who will forever reign as king. And that's the the message we take away from Psalm 2. And the authority of God as king is not a myth, nor is it fantasy. It is real, it is objective, and it's consequential. It's important for every single person. So every time we read a psalm, these precepts, we need God's word, and the king is on his throne, inform our understanding of the passages and tells us of the inherent wisdom that is present within the psalms for our spiritual instruction and training. So with that in mind, let's turn to our psalm for today. It's Psalm 95, and on the Bibles in the chairs in front of you, it's on page 499. So Psalm 95, starting in verse 1. Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for he made it. And his hands formed the dry land. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah and as on the day at Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. For 40 years I loathed that generation and said, They are a people who go astray in their heart, and they have not known my ways. Therefore I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. So the word of God, let it instruct us and inform us in his image. 
Bow your heads as I pray for us. Lord God, bless the reading of your word to our minds and give us wisdom to see your glory this morning as King. By your Spirit, lead us into a love for you and for your Son, Jesus. Amen. Psalm 95 is often referred to as a song of praise. And it's aptly titled, Let Us Sing a Song of Praise in the ESV Bible. I don't know if that's like that in the one ESV you have, but in my ESV it's, it's titled, Let Us Sing a Song of Praise. In another translation that I often read, the Holman Christian Standard, it's titled, Worship and Warning. And I find this a, a bit more fitting as there does seem to be two psalms in one. In Hebrews 3-4 to in the New Testament where the psalm is referenced, we're going to get there a little bit later, it's attributed, Psalm 95, to King David. And one could kind of almost picture David gathering all the people and saying, hey, everyone, I have another psalm. He's written so many of them. And everyone real excited gathering around and listening and him reading the psalm and going, so what'd you think? And everybody kind of going, hey, it started out really good. We loved it. And then someone from the back kind of raised their hand and saying, hey, it seemed like halfway through, you started reading something different. Was that on purpose? Did you mean to do that? Right? Perhaps you noticed the apparent shift in the tenor and tone of the psalm, even where God's voice comes in. And perhaps the, the abrupt end to the psalm was noticeable to you. The psalm that begins with, O come, let us sing, or O come, let us sing to the Lord, ends with God saying, They shall not enter my rest. And we're going to spend our time this morning understanding the synergy between both the message and the meaning of the seemingly different halves of Psalm 95. And here's the wisdom for us. In this psalm, we get to see the nature of God in a transparent and striking fashion. And what seems to be a dichotomy, a a contradiction in the message of the two parts of the psalm, is actually a presentation of God that is consistent with Scripture itself. And it shows God is so awesome that he does indeed deserve our songs of praise. So let's embrace this psalm in two parts and see the nature of God via the invitations that the psalm itself makes. First, the invitation to worship God's authority as king. And second, the invitation to know God's love and mercy. So first the invitation to worship God's authority as king. I referenced a few moments ago that Psalm 2 is the psalm that provides a a key for the reading of all of Psalms that God is on his throne. I said that his authority is not a myth, right? It's not a fantasy. It's real. It's objective. It's consequential. It's important for every person. And this truth is on display in Psalm 95. In verse 3, we read, For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. This psalm, written by King David, inspired by the Holy Spirit, and written for the people of God, praises God as their king. God is the king of Israel, not King David. Their ultimate king is God. He is the king of God's covenant people. And so we read that the people are inspired to make a joyful noise to the Lord in verse 1 and to worship and bow down, and to kneel before the Lord, our Maker, in verse 6. And those two terms, rock of salvation, which is in verse 1, make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation, 
and maker, those two terms, they're tied together. The term maker is not just what we may immediately think, God as creator of the world, although he is. Rather, it's a reference to God's redemptive action, whereby he makes or creates a people for himself and becomes their king. In Genesis 17, God says to Abraham, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and your offspring after you. And later, while the Israelites are slaves in Egypt, God promises deliverance to Moses in chapter 6. He says, Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm, and with great acts of judgment, I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. This is God making a people for himself. Consider, too, in Isaiah, written later in the time. Isaiah comes later after King David, so after this psalm has been written. Later, Isaiah ministering to Judah. In chapter 54, God is referenced figuratively as the husband of his wife, the people. A metaphor that will show up in the New Testament as well when Jesus is the bridegroom for the church. It says in Isaiah 54, For your maker is your husband, the Lord of hosts is his name. And the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. And God of the whole earth, He is called. He is their maker because in His covenant with them, He brings them into His kingdom and under His authority and His protection. And God being the rock of salvation is a picture of that protection. Caves and mountains and rocky crevices are where David often fled from Saul and his other enemies to hide and be safe. David's hope for protection was not in cities or palaces or not even just in those mountains and caves themselves, although that's where he hid and was rescued. Rather, his hope, because he knew God, was in God who provided and guaranteed the salvation. God, the real rock of salvation. And the consequence, the result of all this, is an invitation for the people to worship God as king. And this is instructive for us too. I know it is for me. In reading and preparing for preaching today, this invitation struck me because I'm too often unconsciously or habitually moving throughout my day as if God and I are kind of just on the same team, right? That my supposed familiarity with God has caused me to forget that he's my maker, that he's redeemed me, and I should be more alert of coming into his presence with thanksgiving Because he's my rock of salvation. It is good if your heart is stirred by this consequence as well. God has made us his people. He is our rock of salvation. But there's another consequence as well that God is king. So let's stay here for just another moment. We're still in this invitation to see God's authority as king and to worship him as a result. Let's stay here for a moment longer. Verses 3 to 5 is a declaration of God's authority regardless of whether or not he is the rock of salvation or maker of the people reading the psalm or any one of us reading the psalm. Verses 3 to 5 again, it says, For the Lord is a great God and a great King above all gods. In his hands are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his for he made it and his hands formed the dry land. This is not myth or fantasy. 
God as king is not only true for those who also know God as redeemer. No, this is factually true for all persons at all times and in all situations. And the warning that comes a few verses later is built upon the consequence and the seriousness of God's authority as the great king above all gods in verse 3. This was surely not lost on the person reading this psalm in its time of writing. What does it mean that the Lord is a great king above all gods? Is it an admission of a polytheistic reality in which the Israelite God, the Christian God, the God that we worship, is only one of many real gods? Is that what it means? Is that that the admission? No, right? It's not. Emphatically, no, that's not what it is. Instead, it's either a mocking of the false so-called gods of other nations, or it's a reference to powerful men who acted as judges or administrators of justice, gods as rulers, like Pharaoh was considered a god by the Egyptians because of his rule over Egypt. The term gods is probably both of these things throughout Scripture, and certainly one or the other depending on what psalm you're reading. And Scripture is our guide for how this juxtaposition would have been recognized by believers and how it would have been condemning of unbelievers, those of pagan belief. The ancient world was filled with pagan belief. And the monotheistic belief of Israel with one God who claimed sole authority over all of creation was an offense to other nations. Truly, it's God's claim of sole authority that was probably most offensive because it was so novel. Every other nation is comfortable with many gods, and in some ways, comfortable with the gods of other nations, right? They don't like them. They war against them and each other, but the polytheism was not itself the attention-getter, okay? Consider in Exodus 5, when Moses demands freedom from slavery for the Israelites, and Pharaoh answers, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. Pharaoh is essentially saying, even if I did know him, that's besides the point. I don't want to let them go. Right? He wasn't offended that that Moses introduced another God. Pharaoh's issue wasn't with Israel worshiping another God. He already knew about that since the Israelites were slaves. Because there were countless gods throughout every land, it's not that God claims authority and divinity over people, that is the issue, but that he, can, he, pl- he claims complete and sole divinity and authority as the great king above all gods. Consider this claim in Psalm 82. And this is a psalm where the term gods is most likely a reference to judges of great power and influence, men who were often ascribed divinity, authority, and status. It says in Psalm 82, God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of gods, in the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. You are gods, sons of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, like men you shall die and fall like any prince. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit all the nations. This is God with complete and sole authority. Consider what God himself says in Isaiah chapter 46. These are his words. Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, 
And from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and my, I will accomplish my purpose. I have spoken, and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed, and I will do it. That's the voice of God. The Israelites reading Psalm 95 did not miss this declaration about God's sole authority as the great king above all gods, and neither should we. And I said a moment ago that the ancient cultures were pagan. So is ours. Our world is pagan. And I won't spend too much time here, but I do want to point out some obvious aspects of our modern culture and expose them as opposed to the great king above all gods. Secular humanism reigns in the modern Western culture in which we're situated here in Camp Hill and Pennsylvania and even the United States. Man is the measure of all things and the source of moral authority. We determine what is good and bad, and we look inward to find meaning and purpose. The myth of progress suggests that our social theories and our cultural evolution will enable us to generation after generation become better and more advanced than each preceding generation. The questions of who are we and where did we come from and what are the problems of this world and how do we fix them and, and many other questions, they're up to us to answer. Secular humanism does not believe in what Psalm 1 says, that we need God's word to find wisdom. Secular humanism does not believe in God. And where secular humanism in our world is broken down, because as it turns out, truth is not as easy to agree upon as it would suggest, the void is filled by more flagrant paganism, mysticism, and mythology. This compels a universal affirmation of spirituality, right? Just quote spirituality that rejects a God who is separate in favor of an eternal divinity and a oneness, this idea of oneness that favors interfaith movements and a desire to discover God anew and like never before. And when I say interfaith movements, I don't mean Baptists and Presbyterians, right? I mean, we're, we're figuring that out a little bit, okay? It means all religions of the world getting together and saying, we're essentially doing the same thing. We're one together. Consider what Carl Jung, a psychiatrist from last century, said about the value and necessity of interfaith movements. He said, our world has shrunk, and it's dawning on us that everything is one, with one psyche. And this should prompt Christians, for the sake of charity, to set a good example and acknowledge that though there is only one truth, it speaks in many tongues. That quote reminds me of a satirical modern-day creed by Stephen Turner that he wrote many decades ago, maybe four decades ago, where part of his critique goes like this. He's critiquing the modern-day beliefs, and he writes a satirical creed of what modern-day persons would confess. And he writes, We believe that all religions are basically the same. They all believe in love and goodness. They only differ on matters of creation, sin, heaven, hell, God, and salvation. But is that not the confession of modern culture? It's anti-God, and it's false. The truth is that the Lord is a great God and a great King above all gods. And consider what Scripture says about this once more, about the false gods in Psalm 115. And we confess this morning, reading our, our prayer of confession, other gods that we serve, and it listed a couple, money, greed, right, the things that we want. 
We also serve other actual gods. Those are the things that tempt our spirit. And we can serve them as gods. They're also pagan, false gods that, call, that other nations and other persons literally serve as if they're real. And that's what we're combating. Consider what Scripture says about these false gods in Psalm 115. It says, Our God is in the heavens. He does all that He pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak. Eyes, but do not see. They have ears, but do not hear. Noses, but do not smell. They have hands, but do not feel. Feet, but do not walk. And they do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. O Israel, trust in the Lord. He is their help and shield. And I'll stop there for now with the commentary on our modern culture. There's a lot more that could be said about the pagan culture in which we live and surrounds us and the endless expressions of pagan or demonic belief that is held in our communities where we live, our region and our nation and the world. But let me just point out at least one thing that all of these pagan beliefs have in common. It's kind of obvious at this point. They do not acknowledge God's authority as king. So if Christians like us, any of us in the room that are Christians, have overlapping interests or agreements with how men and women should live and work and generally care for the world in which God has placed us, if we have overlapping interests and agreements with, other, with people of other faiths, pagan, false faiths, we can be grateful for that if we have overlapping interests and agreements, right? That's okay. But we must be ready to see where our opinions, beliefs, and allegiances do not align. So we may both remain under authority of the one true God and also see precisely the ways in which those unbelievers also need to worship and bow down and kneel before the Lord, that they may confess Him as their Maker. So we must never forget what someone repents from and what someone believes in. That is truly loving our neighbors. That is truly loving them, that they would repent and believe and that we would lovingly help them see the need for this. And how does God do this through us? How does God do this with us, for us, right? By his love and by his mercy, And Psalm 95 reveals that love and mercy of God. So let's move to our second invitation. This is the invitation to know God's love and mercy. That noticeable change in tenor and tone of Psalm 95, it happened in verses 8 through 11. In verses 1 through 7, the emphasis is on God's greatness and his kingship and his power and his protection. There is comfort and affirmation for the person of faith who reads those, light, those lines, there's delight and satisfaction in our position before God. But now the rest of the psalm presents a warning against the self-centered and adultering hearts of men and women. And we may very well read that and think, well, that, that changed quickly, right? That escalated quickly, okay? But more seriously, it's fair for us to ask, where is God's love and mercy in that? Where does that exist? And here... Hebrews chapters 3 to 4 helps us to see this. As these verses of Psalm 95 are examined in Hebrews to show that the promises of God in the Old Testament and the promises of God in the New Testament, they're interrelated. 
and they're fulfilled by Jesus Christ. Now, these, these chapters in Hebrews are really rich for the understanding of our Christian faith and living, so we're going to narrow in on some main points. But turn with me, if you will, if you have a Bible, and turn there to Hebrews chapter 3, or listen along as I read. And in the books, in the Bibles, uh, in, your, in your chairs, it's on page 1002. So we're in Hebrews 3, and we're going to start at verse 12. Verse 12, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For, those who heard, for who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Chapter 4. Therefore, While the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any one of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them, because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest, as he said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundations of the world. For he has spoken somewhere of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again, in this passage, he said, they shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again he appoints a certain day, today, saying through David so long afterward, in the words already quoted, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest... God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. And there's a lot in those verses in Hebrews. And there's a lot very rich for the Christian faith in those chapters. And so I want to just focus on just three things that we see when reading Psalm 95 and Hebrews 3 through 4 together. What do we learn when we read these scriptures together? First, our belief in God will be evidenced by our obedience to God's commands. If we have belief in God, it will not be only in an intellectual approval of God or a pragmatic siding with the ideology and worldview of God. It will not be, as Hebrews tells us, just hearing the message of God, but also believing the message of God, being united to that message by faith. If we have belief in God, our worship of God's authority as king will stir a love of God as our rock of salvation and as our maker. And we will trust in the authority of God to the point of obedience. We will not grumble or complain against God. We will not go astray in our heart 
and question the promises of God. That's what Meribah and Massa really mean, literally quarreling and testing. That's what the people in the wilderness following Moses and then Joshua to the promised land, that's what they were doing, disobeying God by quarreling and testing him. And that is what God is reminding the people of in Psalm 95. Do not harden your hearts like your fathers did. And furthermore, as Hebrews 4.1 helps us understand, we should fear this disobedience. We should fear the consequence of disobeying God. And this fear is actually the result of God's love for us. Like a parent who disciplines their child who runs out into the road, so that child will consider the consequence next time and not run into the road. So God warns us about the consequence of unbelief. The parent does not want the child to live without joy and freedom. Right? On the contrary, the parent wants the child to live with complete joy and freedom, but only where it is good and safe for the child to do so. And so in the same way, God warns people against unbelief and the consequence it has of keeping us from God's rest. And he gives us that fear in his love and his mercy. Second observation from Psalm 95 in Hebrews 3 to 4, a revelation of what the promise is, a promise of rest. In Psalm 95, 11, God says that those who do not believe will not enter my rest, which means there is a rest to be had. It's for those who believe. And Hebrews 4, 11 says, says for us to strive to enter that rest. What is that rest? One verse earlier in Hebrews 4, 10 It says that whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. And we're not going to unpack all of this today. This is a revelation that goes all the way back to the early days of creation when God worked for six days and then rested on the seventh day. In sinful rebellion against God, though, Adam and Eve, and as a result, all men and women thereafter, were cast out from God's rest. And no amount of labor with our hands or our minds, can get us right with God. Only the redemptive work of God himself can restore our relationship with him. And that is why he is our maker and the rock of our salvation, because he redeems us. And it's here that, as I said a moment ago, Hebrews shows us that the promises of God in the Old Testament, the promises of God in the New Testament, are all interrelated and fulfilled by Jesus Christ. God's love and mercy is on full display in the birth, life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. The writers of Hebrews, the people reading Hebrews at that time, they know this because Christ already came. This is the foreshadow in the Old Testament of what Christ will be. We have forgiveness of sins in the name of Jesus. We can rest from trying ourselves to atone for our sins. We have the guarantee of eternal life and rest in the kingdom of God by way of our advocate, Jesus. We cannot labor for our own eternal rest, and we don't need to. We can rest from even trying. And this is what is highlighted in Romans chapter 3. In Romans 3, it says, The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ is for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and we are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as propitiation by His blood to be received, not by labor, not by work, 
but by faith. And Romans 3 also speaks of the gift of faith being not only for the Jews, but also for the Gentiles, for all people. Remember, God has authority not just over Israel, but over all people, since he is the great king above all gods. The gift of faith and the promise of rest exists for all people to this day in the name of Jesus. And that brings us to our third and final observation from looking at both Psalm 95 and Hebrews 3-4. through Today is an ever-present day. It's still active. Psalm 95.7 says, Today if you hear his voice. And Hebrews 4.1 draws the conclusion, Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands... Right? Since it is still today, let us fear God and let us believe in the authority of God as king. Let us obey the commands of God. In other words, the promised land to which God was leading the people, and he was really leading the people under the leadership of Moses and Joshua into the promised land when they rebelled, referenced in Psalm 95, when, it, when that was happening, it was not the only and final opportunity for God's people to enter his rest, right? The promised land was a real world kingdom for God's rule, but it was also a metaphorical picture of God's eternal kingdom that was yet to come. That's why King David was able to write many years later, today if you hear his voice. The promise of rest was still there for all who would believe. And in Hebrews 4, the promise of rest still remains, and it does to this day. By way of God's love and kindness, the time has not yet passed. There is still an opportunity to listen to the voice of God, to repent, and to believe. And friend, if you're hearing this today, and you do not believe, this promise is for you, right? If that is you, if you do not believe, you may be tempted to think, there may be rest for God's people, but not for me, right? Or you may think, Steve, I get it. It may not be too late for others, but it is too late for me. Friend, if that's you, hear the words of Jesus himself in John 6. He says, all that the Father gives to me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Friend, there is nothing about you or inside of you that will cause Jesus not to receive you if you but come to him in faith. And this is instructive for all of us, even those of us that are in the faith and who do believe. Dane Ortland, in his book, Gentle and Lowly, writes that, quote, fallen, anxious sinners, of which all of us are, even those of us with faith, Fallen, anxious sinners are limitless in their capacity to perceive reasons for Jesus to cast them out. We are factories of fresh resistance to God's love. It's a good quote. This is true for each and every one of us. Because in our battle against sin in our flesh on this side of heaven, we can all doubt God's love for us. And I want to read an excerpt from Ortland's book where he himself is quoting John Bunyan, the Puritan writer from the 1600s who was preaching on the statement from Jesus that we just read. So Jesus said, all that the Father gives to me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. 
This is what Bunyan writes about that. The promise from Jesus cannot be overcome by any objection you offer about yourself. He goes on to write, What if a person would be saying, But I am a great sinner, say you. I will never cast you out, says Jesus. But I am an old sinner, say you. I will never cast you out, says Jesus. But I am a hard-hearted sinner, say you. I will never cast you out, says Jesus. But I am a backsliding sinner. Is that any one of us? A backsliding sinner, say you. I will never cast you out, says Jesus. But I have served Satan all of my days. Or maybe you're thinking, but I have served pagan deities all of my days. Say you, I will never cast you out, says Jesus. But I have sinned against light, say you. I will never cast you out, says Jesus. But I have sinned against mercy. Who of us has sinned against mercy? If not all of us, say you. I will never cast you out, says Jesus. But I have no good thing to bring with me, say you. I will never cast you out, says Jesus. But the more of the ugliness in me you discover, the sooner you'll get fed up with me, says you. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out, says Jesus. That's what Bunyan wrote. Men and women, it is still today that God offers his promise of rest. That is his love and kindness to us in the warning that he gives to us. If you believe, have confidence in God's authority as king and trust in the name of Jesus. If you do not yet believe, come to Jesus. Rest from your labor to approach God and just come in faith. And let none of us harden our hearts in disobedience, quarreling with or testing God. Instead, let us worship and bow down and kneel before the Lord, the great King above all gods. Amen? Amen. Please bow your heads as I pray for us. God, you have soul and complete divinity and authority over all of creation. You have made everything. It is yours. You have made every one of us. We are yours. God, you call us to be your people. You redeem us as our maker. Help us to trust you and you alone. And God, we pray for the person who does not yet believe that they would come to know you as a gracious and a kind, a loving and merciful God and also an authoritative king, that you would be their maker. Give us hearts that are softened to your love for us, that we would serve you in obedience. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Liberty Church. To learn more about our church or to listen to previous recordings, visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org.